All right, we have this overwhelming, is it on, Wendell? Overwhelming group of people here today. And uh, pretty well overwhelmed by the whole situation. And uh, I didn't know who was going to show up here. But, uh, and a lot of people in this church have been through systematic theology like 18 times already, I think. Because they've been doing it. For, I've never done it, huh? Yeah, I know. That's all I care about. You just group. Mike's done it all along. I think usually he's, he's done it. Other people have done it too. Joey, I shouldn't say just Mike. Shane, Shane's done it, but anyway. Um, so we're going to do it. As far as uh, <clears throat> homework is concerned, I was just telling my great, what's that? Yeah, 20-page paper. Turn that in. And uh, <laughs> make sure you do it. You know, you, you, you outline your passage or you translate your passage from the Greek. Uh, but homework, what I'm doing is we're going to give readings every day like I'm doing an Old Testament survey. And the idea is there's five readings a week. Here's why I came up with this ingenious plan is because, as I said earlier, we're st- I'm still trying to figure out, maybe nobody else is, uh, what to do with the homework. But the reason is there's five readings because if you do all, the, the, each reading corresponds to a letter grade. Five readings a week is an A. Four readings a week is a B, three is a C, two is a D, one is an F. And we, and we add those, so every week you're going to say, we're going to have a paper we turn out or we give out, and you're going to write down, my name is Joe Smith. I, did four, I, I read four out of the five this week, you know, uh, whatever, five or three or whatever. And then I'm going to say, okay, this guy read three. He gets, you know, he, he read uh, three. That's, a, that's, you know, for that week it's three. And then, so I'm going to average every week. Three, four, two, whatever you did, and then you're at grade at the end of the semester, whatever that is is going to be. Let's say it's a four, that's a B, right? So it's a very simple way to do this. That's the way I'm looking at that. Although I'll give more reading here, I think, than I did in the other class. But Joel's trying to figure that class out exactly. But here's my other question: I didn't know what to have you read out of because I'm not sure what you guys have. I mean, I don't know how many people have Wayne Grudem systematic theology, for example. If you, if you have to get it, it's going to cost some money. And so I'm trying to help you with that. How many people in here have that book? We'll have it on Tuesday. Everybody has the book. Oh, okay, great. Okay. What? Okay, and if there's other people, well, so we'll give the readings out of Wayne Grudem then. And I don't have those ready right now because I didn't know what was going on. I'll give you readings for the first time next week. So uh, is that okay if we do that? Like, not you're not going to read, like, the first two chapters of Wayne Grudem by next week, you know, which is a ton of pages. You're going to read a section on Monday. I'll give you a section to read, not forever. You don't have to spend forever on it, okay? And then section on Tuesday and section on Wednesday and so on. Does that make sense? And we won't do that now. We'll start next week. I realize that we realize that everybody's busy, you know, with their lives and all that. So I'm not trying to make you uh, give your life to this particular class. Okay. Yeah. So I heard all these excuses already, so that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> Just trying to help you out, that's all. Okay, um, <clears throat> Lucas, you want to pray for us? Sorry. God, we thank you once again, Lord, that you are gracious, true, loving, and kind. Merciful <coughs> to sinners like us. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more about your truth, to dig deeper into the theology that has set us free from our sin. Thank you for Christ, for his sacrifice, for his resurrection. Pray that we would be more like him as an outcome. 
that we would glorify you in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, inter- let me introduce this a little bit, this idea of, of theology, systematic theology. I'm going to use, uh, right now I'm using many sources, by the way. I'm trying to figure that out, too, as well, what I'm going to end up with. But right now I've used, R.C. Sproul has a little book called Everyone's a Theologian. Not agreeing with everything Sproul says about theology. You don't have to use any of these books. I'm just telling you when I'm using the sources. Grudem's, obviously. Uh, McCune is another guy. Um, John Frame has got a new systematic theology that, you know, he's a covenant guy. He's a good man, but he's a covenant man as well. So I'm not, you know, agreeing with all these guys on everything. You wouldn't, you're not going to agree with everybody on everything. It's impossible, every little detail. But I'm using their, them as sources. Um, now, when it comes to theology, systematic theology, or theology in general, that's no longer in vogue in America or in the world, as you know. It's, become, it's gone by the wayside because everything else has replaced it. It used to be called the queen of the sciences. Did you know that theology used to be called the queen of the sciences back in the Middle Ages and back maybe during the Reformation in that time? Now it's kind of like a court jester, you know? I mean, now it's kind of like nobody cares anymore about it. I mean, the churches don't have this, you know, classes filled with 10 people doing systematic theology. <laughs> they don't have that. Uh, they don't have anybody because they, they, don't, they're not, they don't consider it as important. But theology, um, the, the field of theology is big. It's broken down into several different categories. And, oh, by the way, the, okay, you guys are going to have to remind me of this stuff. I never remember this stuff. These are three pages. One, okay, can you pass these out there? That's the first page. And is this just for the people taking the class or for everybody? Okay. I'm already confused. <laughs> now what do I do? And uh, Steve, this second, that's page two. Okay, Dave is saying on monergism.com you can get Wayne Grudem's reading or lecturing through systematic his systematic theology, right? For five bucks, you yeah, can get that. Okay, that's pretty neat. Okay. Yeah. Now we've had a discussion about Androids and iPhones. Hey, Jimmy, Jimmy just solved the problem with all that. He's taking the book. Forget all the audio stuff. People are all confused. Three pages. Should be three pages. They're clearly unmarked. There's no one, two, three at the top because this is all what you call helter-skelter. Yeah, it's just, this is old school notes right here. You know what I mean? Instead of all this up here, this is this down here. Okay. That's why. All right. All right, so it's a broad category, theology, and it's broken down into several uh, different uh, categories. Historical theology is one. I don't know if I did the, the blank thing, which is never going to happen again, by the way, I'm sure. So <laughs> historical theology is one. What would that be? What's historical theology? Yeah, church history, basically, that kind of thing. A study of biblical doctrines in church history as they developed, as people, you know, in the early centuries fought about... <clears throat> The doctrine of Christ, who's Christ, how many natures does he have, what does all that mean, 
and they had councils, like in, in creeds they drew up in church history. They would have guys arguing back and forth, you know, like what is, what is the two natures of Christ? How does that work? And, and so they would come up with like creeds like the Nicene Creed and creeds like that, and they would pin down, they'd define exactly, in, in many ways, they'd define exactly what, you know, Christology was, doctrine of Christ. And so that's what historical, so if you, if you study historical theology, you're going to study doctrines uh, through church history as the people in the church history looked at them, as they considered them and discussed them and defined them and all that. That's historical theology. And then there's biblical theology, which is somewhat confusing. Biblical theology sounds like a great idea, and it is, only the theologians confuse us, and there's like two or three different definitions about what it is. But basically, as far as I'm concerned, it is this. It's what do individual authors of the scriptures teach? Uh, like, what does John teach? What is John's theology? And, you know, what, John wrote five books of the New Testament, right? Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, and Revelation. So what does John teach in all those books? What is his doctrine of salvation in all those books, okay, for example? And what, is the, what does Paul teach in his theology in all the books, the 13 books he wrote, at least 13? What does he teach and, and things like that? Or it could be sections of the Bible, like what is the Old Testament? What's the Old Testament theology? What is it? What is New Testament theology? And what does it teach? And that's biblical theology, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? Okay. And then there's practical. I didn't put down practical theology. Write down practical theology. And that is <coughs> uh, application of biblical theology. What, what is, okay, we know the theology of the Bible. We see what it teaches. How do we apply that? Like, for example, how does that apply to uh, homosexuality? How do we uh, apply that in our world to homosexuality in our church? To homosexuality. What do people in our church come in who are homosexuals? How do we apply this, you know, how do we apply theology? That's practical theology. I had a Sunday school class one time, and one day there was about 20 people from public high schools in there, and I taught on what the Bible says about homosexuality. Laid it all out very clearly. Said, be, we're compassionate towards people. Such were some of you, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, whichever one it is, 1 Corinthians 6. And, and, yeah, and, uh, all that, and yet I said, it's a sin, it's wrong, you know, and all that. Got through the class. So you're saying that the Bible says homosexuality is a sin? I looked at them all. I could tell all of them were the same, and I thought, this is, this is, they're clueless here. I just said all this, and they're totally clueless, you know, after I got done. So, but that's what theology is. That's what practical theology is. You're applying what you uh, teach, what you learn. And then there's systematic theology. That's what we're doing. What's systematic theology? What does that mean? Why do we call it that? Systematic theology. What is it? Yeah. I don't know what I have in the notes here. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I haven't looked at them in a while. Orderly analysis. It's a coherent uh, uh, organizational structure to give to the doctrines of the, script, of the Scripture, for example, what does the Bible say about salvation? So you pick up the Bible and you look at everything it says about salvation. What does it say about, you know, forgiveness? You get the Bible and you search through it and, and come up with everything it says about forgiveness and you put it together in a structure. Well, it says this and this and this and this and this. So you have a systematized structure for uh, theology. It's a total teaching of, of the Bible on a given subject. And uh, Grudem uh, says that, now, when you look at all these together, Grudem says that the boundary lines between these various disciplines, disciplines of, you know, practical theology and systematic and biblical, they often overlap, and that's true. 
often overlap each other. So can anybody tell me what theology means? What does the word theology mean? You have the word biology, anthropology, and all that? Yeah, study of God. It comes from two Greek words, theos. Theos meaning what? God, logos meaning word. So it's a word about God, or as we say, study of God. Now, there's, there's some things to consider when you are um, studying. Uh, i tell you what. Why don't we leave these back in the back so when people walk in, they can have, Wendell, these are all three separate sheets. Um, there's some things we want to consider concerning theology. Uh, number one, uh, as I said, systematic theology is putting you know, together everything the Bible says about a given subject. So that means there's going to be tensions at times. When you, when you study a given subject, there's going to be tensions in the Bible on that subject. Like, for example, can anybody give me a tension that they're thinking of right now? There are going to be two things held in tension, one against the other, on, on a given subject. Can anybody give me an example of this? Yeah, sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. So, so what do we do? God is so, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, teaches that man is responsible. So what do we do with that? So here's what people do. One group says, well, God's sovereign, that's it. Yeah, man's responsible, but the sovereignty of God overwhelms that completely and, and negates it completely, basically. So, therefore, I, I do believe there's people in our church that lean towards that idea, by the way, what we call hyper-Calvinism. They're so sovereignty of God that man's responsibility gets minimized, see? Well, it's kind of overtaken by the sovereignty of God. But then you have the group that says, no, we're responsible. This is how I grew up. You're responsible. Nobody talked about the sovereignty of God when I grew up. <laughs> Nobody said. Now, yeah, they said things like God's in charge, God's in control about you know, if your, family, if your life was falling apart and things were bad, you were sick, don't forget God's in control. And they understood that, you know. So they weren't totally against the idea, but they didn't teach it outright. So it's all about, you got responsibility. Like you better, you know, you need to do your job. And you, quite frankly, you're not doing your job. And when you do your job, I was in groups that would say, basically, you need to do a whole lot more than you're doing now, even though you're doing your job. So it's all about responsibility, right? So, yeah, but those two are held in tension. You got to hold them in tension together. You can't negate one and throw one away and say, this is not important, that's not important. No. You hold them together. That's just how it is. That's what the scripture says. Okay? There's no, number two, there's no contradictions in the Bible or even, we can't even keep track of what the Lord's saying at all. God, how can God contradict himself? If God is who he says he is, how can he contradict himself? He can't do that. Three, often a nuance of doctrine is highlighted in a passage, but not all of it. So you have the subject of salvation or Holy Spirit, and you see something about the Holy Spirit in a given passage, but it's only a little bit, a nuance, okay? It's not the entire teaching. So don't take that passage and say, this is what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Well, it says a lot more, you know? So understand it's just talking about that in, in a little bit. So some people, they'll take, you know, they'll take a doctrine of, uh, you know, election, and they'll run with it. They'll become flaming evangelists for the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Um, but... We need to maintain a certain balance. What, maintain, what balance do we need to maintain as we're teaching the Bible and, and tensions like that? What do we do? We maintain, we maintain the balance the Bible maintains, right? Not the one I want or the one this guy wants or the one Dr. So-and-so says we should have. But the Bible says this and it says this, therefore I maintain that tension. That's all I care about. Um, number four, do not study uh, the desire. Do not study theology with a desire to get the big head. 
lot of people do that. You know some of the most dangerous people in the, in the, in the Christian world are? Christian college students in the first or second year or seminary students in the first or second year. Some of the most dangerous people around. Why is that? They think they know everything. A lot of guys, after one year of seminary training, or I know an individual right now is thinking of, after two years of Bible college, now knows everything and is arrogant about it and hates certain people because of what he thinks he, hold, he holds to now. And I'm like, wow. So if the study of the Bible makes you proud and arrogant, then there's a problem somewhere with how you're looking at things. How, what should the Bible do to us to study the Bible? Make us, make us humble, right? And make us realize we don't know anything. Steve? Yeah, you probably are because I probably lost my place on your notes. Yeah, it's what we're under is a section of uh, I didn't I didn't title it. It's under uh, define the term theology. This is a work in progress. What you call a whip? We had a whip uh, the uniform company. We had a whip line. WIP. That was a work in progress line. Okay, that's what this is. You're looking at the whip line right here. Uh, we're learning as we go here. No, you didn't. Do you see where I'm at now? I didn't, I didn't, what I didn't do was put a category on top there. I didn't put that, that category. So I'm saying now don't, um, don't study the Bible with the desire to get the big head number. And then application is necessary. Do you see that? It's necessary to apply the scriptures. Is that there? Okay. Huh? Oh, okay. That's my other problem. I'm not doing that again. It doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. Application is necessary. Yeah. Okay. So did we not fill in all the blanks? Sorry about that. Okay. Wendell, what's going on? Okay. Well, at least we're all communicating here, clearly. That's the main thing. <laughs> Application is necessary. Not enough to know about the doctrines. We must live the doctrines, right? Say, well, I'm studying theology. Yeah, but are we living theology is the question. Um, this class, we're going to study four subjects in systematic theology. Bibliology, do I have that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now I'm confused. Theology proper, number two. Are these blanks you have to fill in? Okay. Uh, Christology and pneumatology. What is bibliology? Study the Bible. What is theology proper? Person, you know, study the person work of God, especially God the Father in our, in our, for our purposes. What is Christology? Obviously. But what is pneumatology? That's a different word. Holy Spirit, right? So we're, that's what we're going to do. That's the goal in this particular class that we're studying. Um, we'll start with bibliology. <clears throat> and there's, let's talk about the methods of revelation. Uh, how has God chosen to reveal himself in his truth? Well, in two major ways. Two major ways are what? Well, yeah, Old and New Testament, that's true, but that's not the methods of revelation. Yeah, the, the methods are general and specific, general and special revelation, rather. General and special revelation. <clears throat> um, there's notes in the back of the class somewhere, hopefully. Um, general revelation is God revealing himself through creation. Reveals himself through creation. Special revelation is God revealing himself through what? 
Through what? Yeah, yeah the Bible, right, through Scripture, right. Um, and uh, if you, you know, we'll look at Psalm 19. In fact, turn to Psalm 19 right now. Um, if you look at Psalm 19, it's often being called the two books. God has two books, the book of nature, general revelation is nature, and he's got the book of Scripture, those two books. Um, and both of them reveal him in different ways. Psalm 19, turn there. This is God revealed. This is general revelation. By the way, general revelation is also called natural revelation. Nature, natural revelation, general revelation, all the same thing. Uh, and God reveals himself through nature. That's found in Psalm 19, 1 to 6. Somebody want to read that for me? All right, now I'm real curious about that translation. What is that? It's okay. Which one is it? New Living Translation. Okay, all right. Just curious as to what it was. That's all. I'm not criticizing. It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> we have people that take care of that, Wendell. I don't do that anymore. Uh, but this is general revelation that, you know, um, it's about God's world, right? And it's called, it's called general revelation for two reasons. Number one, it's a revelation to everyone in the world. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth. Um, uh, their utterances to the end of the world. God's shown everybody uh, through his creation. Uh, Romans 1, 1 to 8, now we've read this a million times. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So people, we should know by looking at creation, by looking at the, around, or what's around us, that there's a God who created this and that's what the scripture says. So it's a revelation to everyone. Everyone should know this. It has this information to them. They can see. All, all of us can see this in front of us. Um, it says in Acts 14, 15 through 17, <clears throat> Acts 14, 15 through 17, Paul's preaching. And he says, uh, he says uh, men, why are you doing these things? Acts 14, 15. We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all sent them. In the generations that have gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with, hearts with food and gladness. So God has shown himself who he is by his creation. So it's a revelation to everyone in the world. That's why they call it general revelation. Secondly, it's a revelation of, of a general content. It's of a general content. Um, let me ask you this question. Will general revelation, that the revelation of nature, will that 
give us the knowledge that leads to salvation. Will that give us an understanding of the gospel? If I look at nature and creation and all that. Um, it, does, it does it because sunrise teaches us there's a great creator, but it doesn't teach us about the cross, right? About salvation, about the new birth. So people have to go elsewhere to get this information. And that brings us to, it can be the starting point, though, general revelation. So looking to understanding God. Then that brings us to special revelation. God has revealed himself through the scriptures. General revelation shows us God's creation. Special revelation shows us. Yes, sir. That's a great testimony. <clears throat> Anybody else think that before they were believers? Wow, that's that's good. Um, and so um, the special revelation teaches us directly about God, though, as opposed to, although I could say in some ways, so does general revelation. Yeah, Dave. Yeah. You, you mean... Right. They rejected it, basically. Um, turn to Psalm 19, 7 through 11. That's special revelation. Uh, what is, can someone read that to me? Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so, you know, in both, in this chapter alone, this one chapter, you have God's general revelation, you got special revelation. You see the scripture does all these things, restores the soul and makes wise the simple and rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes and it's clean, endures forever, they're righteous all together and they're desirable and they give us warnings, all these things. So um, that's special revelation. Now, I'm going to, that little next section there, when it talks about through direct revelation and theophany and so on. I'm skipping that for right now, okay? That was kind of out of place, but we may come back to it. Of course. What's that? They do all the time. They always say that and, uh, you know, see, uh, refer them to the scripture, right? Yeah, right. People are always saying that. We had people come here to our church and say that. And, uh, I won't go into all that right now. Uh, I am curious. Yeah. And it's also on, it was posted on Facebook, and it's talking about uh, 
in the Muslim nation, mm-hmm. you said like in Syria, where all the persecution is being come upon yeah. massively upon Muslims who will not uh, commit themselves to killing people, you know, don't want to be like that, but they, they quote-unquote follow their faith uh, peacefully or mm-hmm. whatnot, whatever their desires are, but, you know, the differences between the two sets of Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the thing I was reading, the article I read said that Muslims were coming to the faith in droves, and a couple of the, the uh, examples they used, these mm-hmm. are people that were in the Muslim faith, and they said, the, w- the first example they used, the gentleman said he saw Jesus in a dream, and, you know, maybe Jesus said something to, like, you know, go and become a Christian or something like yeah, that effect. right. And now, obviously, we know by Scripture, or what we would believe that mm-hmm. that be untrue, but how would, how should we address someone if they have that, that you know, if somebody comes to me and they're like, man, I don't know what I need, but I know I need Jesus because I saw him in my dream and he talked to me. How do I, how do I discuss that? I yeah. don't want to just douse water on him and turn him completely away, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to allow him to be in this mistaken identity that is not repentance and faith. And yeah. Yeah, personally, things like that, for me, I, I would, um, I'll tell you what I would, what, what I think I would do. Now, you could say this, Lucas. You could say, look, um, you know, you could, add, you could question him, are you sure? That what you saw is about how do you know this, you know, information. I mean, you know. Or but but what I would do probably is just say ignore that completely. Because look, if the guy's not a believer, right? I would ignore it completely and say, you know, let's talk about what the scripture says and just go straight to that. Just ignore the dream altogether. Yeah. It says this, it says that, it says that. And then look, if the guy comes to know Christ, he can learn in time, oh, that was a bunch of baloney, you know. Yeah. Uh, I know a guy that became a believer. Now this is what I would do. I'm gonna give you your opinion. Uh, and uh there was things he didn't understand about a lot of stuff. But in time, he began to understand what he didn't understand. In other words, his misconceptions were corrected yeah. later on. But if you're trying to correct a misconception while the guy's unsaved, good luck maybe, you know, on that one. Okay, anybody else want to say something about that? Right, and I, I, uh, I mean, I, he said you can't enter into a person's past experience and say, okay, exactly, let's analyze what happened here. <laughs> How can I do that, you know? So uh, because of his background, his experience, his circumstances, and all this feed into him, you know, that person. And so all I can do is, I think the best thing to do is just take him to the scriptures, whatever happened, and say, hey, let's look at what the Bible says. You want to know God? It says if he asks you that question, you need, you know, you need to understand these things right here, you know. I just circumvent and go around. I think that was true of a lot of arguments, by the way. People throw up a lot of stuff and just say, well, what does Scripture say here? You know, uh, Someone else may want to say something. Dave? I just want to add, I agree, uh, but I would just say that's a great opportunity just in general for mm-hmm. us to affirm what we do believe and so what's before us. 
scriptures are the final authority in everything. Mm-hmm. Any time anyone says anything out of the pulpit by God, Joseph Smith or the Mormons, whatever, yeah. it's always going to be tested by the infallible, unchanging word of God. And it's just yeah. a great opportunity for us to, to model that and be consistent and make sure yeah. we're doing that in our own lives like we do. Yeah, I heard Irvin Luther say, this reminds me of Lucas one time, he said, uh, I'm not now telling you that, uh, you know, as soon as I throw out a name, you know, people, some people say, I don't like that guy. Other people say, I do like that guy. Irvin, Irvin Luther is a strong Calvinist, by the way, just so you don't know. But Irvin Luther said one time, um, he said, you know, he talked to a lady, and the lady said, I had a vision of Christ. He said this and this and this. And he says, I realize that lady's not going to, if I say to her, you didn't have a vision of Christ, she's going to say, why are you calling God a liar, you know? <laughs> so he kind of circ- circumvented the whole thing and went around it. So, I mean, he's, he's got a, he may have a point there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can we read Second Peter one three? Uh, not remembering it right now. Oh yeah, yeah right. Granted all this life and godliness. Yeah right. Yeah you could you could use it. I would use Psalm nineteen seven through eleven. You can use Second Peter oh, one three. He's granted us. That's, that's good. Yeah, that's fine. You can do that. Yeah, for sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, I'm sorry. I was just going to say it's, it's kind of unfortunate because, like, I'm, I think that my background probably mimics yours in terms of the Nazarene church that we come out of. But you have a lot of erroneous teaching. But when a lot of people get saved, mm-hmm. and particularly back in the early years of us, I always say it's like you do what you know. In other words, what you've been taught. Yeah. If you were taught something yeah. erroneous about mm-hmm. God spoke to me when I was saved, or I had this dream last night, or I was sitting in church and I had a vision. Most people mm-hmm. who think in that vein was taught like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, we know that uh, when we take that and measure it up against Scripture, mm-hmm. then it's something kind of out of balance there. Right. But that comes with, like for me, for example, yeah. I wholeheartedly, with everything within me, and I know I was saved. I don't say I never doubt my salvation. I know I was saved. Mm-hmm. But over time, I saw real lively that a lot of the teaching wasn't, you know, it was supposed mm-hmm. to be. And so over a period of time, we saw real lively that, that it, it can't be true. Yeah. Because we walk in the same thing. Right. You know, erroneous mm-hmm. teaching. Yeah. Not general, not, well, not, you know, special revelation, but we went outside of that. Right. And we got to realize what he just said. That people are coming from all kinds of, if they walk in this church, they're coming from all kinds of backgrounds. You don't know where they came from. Right. They came from some church. They think all kinds of stuff, you know, and visions and this, that, and the other thing. So the only way, here's what, here's the way to, to, to combat that. that. If they can hear the teaching of the word on a regular basis, oh, okay, this is what the scripture says. I'm looking at it. He just said, turn to the next verse. I can see it with my own two eyes now, you know. I, I, I say that to say this for myself personally, but yeah. for all of us. Through the wisdom of God, you can be right, mm-hmm. but if you don't use God's wisdom in your approach, right. you can mm-hmm. take that person and you can just beat them down, and they feel like they're standing this tall. Yeah. But if you use the wisdom of God yeah. through the Scripture, you might be able to share enough peace to tell that person mm-hmm. why that dream they had or that vision or whatever doesn't line up with Scripture. Right. That's what we need. Yeah. You know, the, the wisdom of God in order to do those things. Yeah. Let's, let's go back to that list, since we're talking about this anyway. This is a little bit. Let's go back to the list under special revelation. I just told you to ignore. We'll go back there anyway. Uh, but uh, you're right, Jimmy, and uh, 
And we can't, you know, you can, okay, there's a time and a place to confront a false prophet. Time and a place for that. For example, Mike confronted the, the false prophet over at USF and the now famous incident over there, the brother Micah over there. <laughs> that's a long story, okay? Uh, that's the guy, the guy was a clear, a clear false prophet without a doubt at all, and, you know, um, but he's not going to, I mean, he needs to be called out, that guy, okay? But I'm talking about people coming in, they've been taught the wrong thing. You're right. If we sit here and, and we're going to win the argument, well, we may lose the souls, you know? So we've got to be careful people. We've got to be very, very patient with people that haven't, they, they've got to be taught, and they haven't been taught all their life, most people, so they don't know what's going on, you know? Um, so anyway, there's different ways the Scripture re records of how God, re you know, gave his revelation in special revelation. Different ways, for example, through direct revelation. Luke, you want to turn to Genesis 1:27. Uh, Timmy, can you turn to Genesis 18:1? Uh, Dave, can you turn to Daniel 9, chapter 9? I'm giving you the toughest one. Daniel 9, yeah. And uh, gave Dave a tough one there. And then uh, Rob, Genesis 28. And Kyle, do you mind turning to First Samuel 3? First Samuel 3. Um, and then uh, Steve, do you mind turning to John chapter 1? John 1. And uh, we'll see the different ways that you know, the Lord spoke through the special revelation. For example, he spoke through direct revelation. What does Genesis 1, 27 and 28 say? For God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's just direct revelation. Straight from God to Adam, from what do they say, the old saying, from God's mouth to Adam's ear, right? Direct revelation, straight on. Okay, what about through a theophany? What does Genesis 18.1 say? Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Yeah, the Lord himself appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18. You see it in 18.19, and uh, the two angels with him. And that's a theo what's a theophany? Yeah. It's an appearance of God, right? An incarnate appearance of God. Um, and that's uh, and somewhat mysterious to us. There's no way we can fully understand that. But nevertheless, that's what happened there. And then the word was given to Abraham through that theophany. When you, like, I understand the uh, NASB or, or the uh, modern text, when they capitalize Lord, L-O-R-D, they, that's meaning um, Yahweh. So yeah. is that what that means, that now Yahweh appeared to him? So Yahweh appeared to yeah, him? Yeah, but uh, I, yeah, is it say capital L-O-R-D there? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. That. yeah you, that's what the translators are supposed to mean. Yeah, and I like to say, well, that's why I said it's a certain element of mystery. How does Yahweh appear in a theophany? I don't know. I don't think he did either, Abraham. But the Lord appeared to him somehow. A theophany is simply an Old Testament appearance or rather an appearance of God. Now, some people would talk about a Christophany, appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. However, I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm just saying that this is one of the ways of revelation right now, the way that God appeared to people. Um, how that works out, Luke, I don't think, I mean, no one knows, I don't think. No one could possibly know that. 
Uh, and then through angels, God, God spoke through angels, uh, Daniel 9, 20 to 22. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the whole mountain of Jephthah my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening office. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have so God uses an angel to speak to Daniel and to give him instructions. And then you see that in other places too, like Luke 1, you know, the angel appeared to Zacharias, spoke to him, and that was Gabriel as well. Okay, what about uh, through a dream, Genesis 28, 10 through 13? So this is the various ways in which God appeared through a dream in this case, and God speaks and says something. Uh, what's that? Genesis 28, 10 through 13. I often wondered how, how Jacob, you know, the thing that puzzles me about that passage, it says he grabbed the stone and put it under his head for a pillow. I'm like, I could never have slept that night. Like the, and then he speaks through prophets. As we're talking about, you know, the, the revelation that God gave. Uh, God gave 1 Samuel 3, 19 through 4, 1. Yeah, she says 4-1-A. But uh, basically, Samuel, the Lord spoke to Samuel, and then Samuel gave the word to all Israel. And then, uh, so he spoke through prophets. He spoke through Christ, John 1-1. And then John 1-14 through 18 talks about how Christ explained God. He goes into it. And then, uh, and so these are some of the ways that um, the revelation comes across in the Old Testament. Um, so there's two basic ways, generally speaking, though, general revelation, specific, uh, special revelation. Um, so it's not a waste of time to learn about, somebody says, is it a waste of time to learn about nature and science and geography and geology and all these things? No, because why? That's a study of God's world, right? That's part of general, uh, general revelation. And, uh, you know, this, like the song says, this is my father's world. So we should study the world, God's world, but we should also study what? God's word, right? Because that's special revelation. Um, and so if we don't, we'll, we, we won't know him, and we'll be stunned in our growth spiritually. And so they, these, are, have, these, these things have to do with revelation. Now let's look at inspiration of Scripture. Do you have that down on the notes, inspiration of Scripture? Okay. Um, this is foundational. This is foundational to everything that we're doing here, foundational to the Bible, foundational to what we believe. Uh, if, you know, since God spoke, then what he says is absolutely true. It's absolutely authoritative, binding upon our lives. 
And so we want to know what, what it means when we talk about inspiration. What does that mean? Well, we want to look at what it means, and we want to look at what it does not mean, okay? So turn to 2 Samuel, uh, second, not Samuel, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And uh, the famous verse, you may have it memorized. Anybody memorize it? It says what? Yeah, and it's right. Profitable for what? That's right. All those things. So this is the, the, the classic verse on inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. There are a couple translations that, that try to, some people try to translate it another way, by the way, and a couple translations have done this, and this is very awkward and very, strange and very weird, and I would not translate it this way. Every scripture inspired by God is also profitable. Think about that for a minute. Every scripture inspired by, by God is also profitable. Is there any issues with that? Well, some say if it says every scripture, yeah. it's implying that there are some scriptures. It seems like an implication there. Some would say there's not. But, Jess Hill? Yeah. So every scripture is inspired by God is profitable. Well, does that mean all the scriptures are inspired by God or not? It's a little, it's a little shaky in my opinion, at least. So, and it's not normal. It's not the normal way to translate it. Some people do try to translate it that way. Um, so, how do you determine which is inspired and which is not inspired? That's another problem, right? But this, this verse, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, um, is is uh, or as the ESV says, very good. Uh, very well translated. Our, all scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos is breathed out by God, right? Um, and all scripture here, now there's several facts that are taught by this, this verse. First of all, first fact that's taught is all scripture, and this verse is primarily and first of all, first and foremost, we should say referring to the Old Testament. You thought about that before, referring to the Old Testament. Because the word for scripture is graphe, and this word is used... 51 times, I think, always referring to the Old Testament scriptures every time it's used. So in 3.15, what does 3.15 say? It says, from a childhood, Timothy, you've known the sacred writings, the sacred uh, uh, graphe, uh, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What did Timothy grow up learning? What did he have available to him? Do you have the New Testament? I think I'll look at Philippians today, see what this says. He had what? Old Testament. And so this, first and foremost, is referring to the Old Testament. Um, and this is what the apostles had. This is what Paul had. This is what these guys preached out of, by the way. They preached out of the Old Testament. That's what they had. So they preached out of They're always referring to the Old Testament. Why? That's what they had. And the uh, New Testament was being written, and it would be included in the inspired writings. However, it was not written at the time. It was being written. Um, the term scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 still has, as I say, has first reference to the Old Testament. That's how G the Jews would have understood the term, by the way. Um, that there's another phrase used in the New Testament often, it is written. You see that again and again? Turn to Matthew chapter 4, for example. Matthew 4. Matthew, when Je the, Satan's tempting uh, Jesus, and uh, he's tempted three times, and he answers every temptation with what? Yeah, it's written, right? Uh, Matthew 4, verse 4, you know, Satan says to him, hey, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread because he's been fasting for 40 days. And Jesus, he answered and said, it is written. It's written. 
And then he quotes Deuteronomy 6, uh, rather 8, 3. Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And then look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Satan gives another thing. Hey, you know, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Angels are going to bear you up. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written. That's the voice of authority. It is written. And he quotes Deuteronomy again. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6.16 he quotes. And then, again, the, Satan tempts him and he says, hey, I'll give you all the glories of the, of the world if you'll fall down and worship me. In verse 10, Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's Deuteronomy 6.13. Interesting he quoted Deuteronomy every time, which is the favorite book of Jesus, by the way. He always quoted, I think he quoted that book more than any other, Deuteronomy. Um, that was the Bible of Jesus and the apostles of the Old Testament. And, uh, and so we know the Old Testament is inspired of God. What about the New Testament? Is that inspired too? Or is that like a secondary thing? That's... Well, look at 2 Peter 3.1. 2 Peter 3.1. When you said that, Jesse L., 2 Peter 1.3, I was thinking of 2 Peter 3.1. So I knew I was going to talk about that earlier. Um, 2 Peter 3.1 and 2. And someone went around to read that for us. Okay, he's putting Old Testament writers and New Testament writers on the same par. He's saying in verse 2, remember the words spoken before by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, writers, and the commandment, uh, and, and, and those spoken by the apostles as well. So he's putting these, remember these words. He's putting these words on the same basis, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, and so he doesn't say one's less than the other or anything like that. Yeah, we're going to go to that next. And then look at uh, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. He puts Paul's writings on the, on the par with, he says they're scripture. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. What does it say, Rob? Yeah. Uh, in regard to him who called our Lord our salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote you, as also in all his letters, speaking in the name of Jesus Christ, both as one thing in our opinion and eloquence, the untaught, unstable, short, and to you also the way, which are found in Christ. Isn't that interesting? Peter says, talks about Paul's writing, says, well, you know, they do that with the rest of the scriptures too. Saying, his writings are scriptures as well. So he, he covers the, the ground, basically, of the New Testament by saying this. First of all, there's a reference to the Old Testament. By what, what, this idea of all scripture, first of all, pointing to the Old Testament, what does that tell us? Dave. It tells us there was an established canon that we recognize that this is the scripture of God. Yeah, it does tell us that, number one. And it tells us in an application sense, what, number two? It tells us what? We shouldn't neglect the Old Testament, right? Because there's something that's important, or else uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be pointed out that way. All right, so Old Testament is, is primary in Acts in Second uh, Timothy three sixteen, and then number two doesn't say two. It's got a, like a line. Well, I don't know what I have there. There's no telling. A question mark. Who knows? The whole thing seems to be a question mark. The way I put it together. The scriptures originate with God. Did I say that something like something like that. The scriptures originate with God. I'll try to do better on the next note. 
The NASB and the King James use the word inspired or inspiration. Um, but as I said, the ESV, all scriptures breathed out by God. It's a good translation. Um, so basically what we're saying here is that the origin of the scriptures is not man, it's from God. Grudem says, since, it's his, since it is writings that are said to be breathed out, this breathing must be understood as a metaphor for speaking the words of scripture. God spoke the words of scripture. So when you see the Old Testament often that phrase, thus says the Lord appears, thus says the Lord again and again, that teaches us that what? When the, when the scripture speaks, God speaks, right? You can hold on to that. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. And then uh, another point we want to look at here is the scripture is profitable. Did I lose everybody again on the notes? Am I now confusing notes? It's profitable. Uh, and since the Old Testament was, you know, was, was the scripture at the time of, of writing, he's saying the Old Testament is profitable as well as the New Testament. Um, and so uh, we want to keep that in mind too. It's very profitable. Now, how, now it's profitable in four areas. It's profitable in four areas. Teaching, number one, right? That's foundational. Um, we must learn what the scripture teaches about God, about man, about sin, about salvation, about many things. Um, because if we do not, we'll become like Ephesians 4.14. We'll be thrown about by every wind of doctrine. And so it's very important. That's foundational. We must be taught the Bible. It's funny because you know, you, the average church doesn't believe in teaching the Bible all that much, right? But this is the first thing listed under why the scripture is profitable. It's for teaching. Secondly, it's for reproof. Reproof means to rebuke us. Rebuke us. When we depart from the teaching of the scripture, the scripture rebukes us. Okay? I don't, it's not like somebody come up to me rebuking me. It's the scripture rebuking me as I read it. That's why we need to read the scripture. Holy Spirit convicts us of areas where we've gone astray. Thirdly, correction. That's a restoration to a former, former spiritual condition. I've, you know, I'm, I've fallen away. I'm not living like I should. And the scripture calls me back, corrects me. This word was used in history to, to mean that an object that had fallen off, maybe something, uh, this had fallen off on the ground, and then it's to put it back in place again is what the word has to do with. Correction, correcting me, telling me, hey, get your act together and get back in the game here, right? Number four, training in righteousness. That's the positive work of the, uh, of the scriptures. It gives us proper instruction in godly living. It's an education in righteousness. So we are, we're, we're trained to live righteous. You know, the Bible like a, uh, is like an education. It is an education in itself, really. If, you know, they, they said of John Wesley that he was a man of one, book, of one book, and they said beware of the man of one book, right? Because if you, if you get a hold of that one book, the Scripture, that's a, that's a library that, you know, if you had nothing else, you're good to go. You're good to go right there. You have everything you need for life and godliness, as Jesse L. pointed out. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Does anybody have any questions about that passage? Yeah, thank you. What's 17 say, Steve? Didn't left it out. Yep. Yeah, makes you completely furnished, thoroughly furnished, and completely equipped to do the work of God, right? So the scriptures are what we need, everybody individually needs. This is what it's all about right here. So uh, to mark that, that phrase, man of God, it just means a spiritual veteran. The man of God must be the man of God. Must not my anointing be 
I think it is. Now, he, ta- he calls Timothy the man of God in 1 Timothy 6. And so he's talking, to, and he's talking to Timothy. He's talking to Timothy. Yeah, Timothy was what I call, people say Timothy was a pastor. Okay, that's fine. I call him an apostolic representative. I read that from somebody. I said, that's it. I think that's what it is. He represented Paul wherever he went. But, but I, think it's, I think the application goes to every believer because uh, I think this instruction is for everybody. He's telling Timothy, hey, you know, you grew up with the scriptures, you know. Keep, keep doing what you're doing and, and keep going with the scriptures. That's going to make you adequate for the job. But there's no reason to believe other, that it wouldn't mean, apply to everybody. You know, there's no reason to believe that it wouldn't. So I think, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, by the way. Yeah, to say this is the man, this touch is God's anointed, not God's anointed in all his businesses. They're just a man like uh, the rest of us are, you know. We're all fallen men, fallen people. That's all we are, saved by grace, nothing more. Anybody else have a comment or question about that? Steve, did I? Yeah, that's right. Verse 17, it's 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. That's together, that passage. That's right, that's together, never separate. I'm just pointing out some things about one verse. Okay, turn to 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. I don't know what time we get out of here. I, I know that it's 40, it's 15 till 6, but anyway. Um, what does 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 say? Yeah, um, I think that was, uh, no, I'm sorry, Second Peter, maybe I said First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verses, t- wait a minute, where are we at now? Yeah, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 is what it is, Jesse, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Okay, good. And uh, this, again, you know, tells us about the importance of Scripture being inspired by God. However, now we're, we're confronted with a different aspect of inspiration. What is that? What are we talking about in this, in this verse, these verses? What aspect of inspiration? People writing the Scripture, right? We're not talking about God. We are talking about God, but we're talking about people writing Scripture. We call this dual authorship. Dual authorship. Um, God inspired his word and people wrote it down. So there's two authors. So I can say, you know, God says in Romans 10 this, or I could say Paul says in Romans 10 this. You hear both, but both are true. God inspired it, Paul wrote it down. That's called dual authorship. And uh, God, let me ask you this question. When that, does that mean that God used the personalities of Paul and John and Moses? Yeah, he used their personality. He used their vocabulary even. And guess what? They have different vocabulary different ways of writing. Um, uh, there, there's different, you know, if you look in the, even in the Greek vocabulary, if you look in the Gospel of John, First John, it's the easiest, some of the easiest Greek there is. If you look in Hebrews, sophisticated Greek. It's the same, it's Koine Greek, but it's more sophisticated. So the writings were different. You know, I, I, and so they didn't all, you know, Peter was an unlearned fisherman. You know, so he wrote a different way. And so these guys are all different, but they're all writing the Word of God, right? They didn't, they're moved along, the word where it says there that they're, nobody ever wrote 
by an act of human will. They're moved by the Holy Spirit. It's got the idea of they're born along like a ship on the waves of the ocean. And so like the, the waves bore, bear the ship along, that's how God bore them along. As, as they wrote his words, but they did it, they did it with their words and, 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 and their vocabulary and their personality and all that. So the writers are, you know, you can see different nuances in the writings. John repeating things again and again and again. Love your brother, love your brother, love your brother, you know, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. John, uh, uh, Paul being very theologically, you know, succinct and, you know, logical and all that stuff, he's different in the way he did things. So they're like that. Now look at, and so the, and the writers claim that they wrote what they wrote. They all claim, make this claim. So if you would, turn back to the Old Testament, turn to the first minor prophet. We're going to go through a little uh, trip here with every minor prophet to see what they said. Now turn to start with Hosea, okay? Spanish prophet, Hosea. After Daniel, okay? Go go to Hosea and you say, Well, I don't you know, I'm gonna get lost in the minor prophets, not this time. We're all starting Hosea, and we're gonna go one book at a time, okay? To go to the next book. Um, to see what these guys said. Listen to the testimony of the prophets of the Old Testament. Hosea one one. I have some major prophets there, too, in the notes, maybe, but I'm starting with Hosea 1.1, okay, the minor prophets, which I think I've put these, some of these out of order. I don't know what I was. I must have been out of my mind putting your notes together or something. I think I lost my mind at the time and had temporary insanity set in. So, anyway, Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea. See that? He's claiming it as having God's word given to him. Go to the next book. That's Joel, okay? We don't need to get lost here and end up in Amos somewhere. Just go to the next book, Joel, right? Baby Joel, as we call him, as we call Stephen's son. Joel, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Very simple, right? He's, he's claiming that the scripture came to me. Go to the next book in the, in the Minor Prophets. Amos. Amos 1, 1. The words of Amos. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, Amos says. So he's claiming that he's, he's, he's giving, he's representing the word of God here. Go to the next minor prophet after Amos. This is Obadiah. Obadiah. 1-1, one, one, vision of Obadiah. Thus says who? The Lord God, right? Again. Go to the next book. It's only one chapter. Jonah 1.1, 1, 1. the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Next book, Micah, Micah 1.1, 1, 1. the word of the Lord which came to Micah, it says. Next book, Nahum, Nahum 1.1. 1, 1. The oracle of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, verse 12, thus says the Lord. Again, minor prophet giving the word of God. Next book, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.1, 1, 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And he talks about the Lord and his relationship with him. And then the next book, Zephaniah 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah. Haggai. 
1 1. Second year of Darius the king, uh, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. Zechariah. Next book, 1 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. Look at the last book, Malachi. Malachi 1 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, by the hand of Malachi. And so, all these writers, this is just a sampling of the, of the and since we never look at the minor prophets, you know. Uh, of, of they, 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 they claim inspiration from God. The word of God came to them. So um, that's, that's something we can look at there. Um, I'm trying to figure out how far to go with this thing. Well, we'll keep going. Uh, what does inspiration, what does it not mean? What does inspiration not mean? First of all, it does not mean the writers themselves were inspired. You have that? The writers themselves were not inspired. We might give people the wrong impression if we talked about the inspired writers of Scripture. That's okay. I understand what you're saying. I don't have a problem with it. But Paul and Peter and Jeremiah themselves were not inspired. The Scripture they penned was inspired. That's the, the fine point you want to make right there. The Scripture that they penned were inspired. The Holy Spirit worked through them somehow to cause to what they write, to what they wrote to be the inspired Word of God. That's the proper way to look at it. Okay? That's number one. Number two... It does not mean that only thoughts were given to the writers, so the exact word they write, wrote was not inspired. It doesn't mean that only thoughts were given to them. You know, that God somehow you know, came to Jeremiah and said, hey, here's, here's a little summary of what I'm trying to get across. Fill it in. Figure this out. That's not what happened. He gave, they, they, they wrote down his exact words, okay? So they, didn't, they weren't free to paraphrase it or any of that. He gave them, you know, what they needed to hear first Corinthians 2.13 talks about the words. Scriptures inspired their words. By the way, inspiration extends to all the words. We call that, what do we call that? Yeah, verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. What does verbal mean? To the, extends to the words, right? And plenary means all scripture. So all scripture is inspired to, down to the very words. All scripture is inspired, not, not the thoughts. It's, it's got to do with the words. All right. Thirdly, we'll end right here, I guess. It does not mean mechanical dictation. The inspiration does not mean mechanical dictation. These writers weren't robots, you know. And God gave them the word, and they just like, you ever been in a court case? I've been in a couple court cases. And the court reporter, you ever seen her down there? She's going like this, not even looking at what she's typing. I'm like, how in the world do you even do that, you know? But it's not like that. I'm typing every single word that's said in that court case. That's not what they did. It was, it was more involved than that. It wasn't a mechanical thing. Like I said, God used the, their personalities and their vocabulary and all that to put his word down. And so, basically, that's some things that inspiration is not. Let me ask you real quick as we, as we go. Think about this next week. How would you define inspiration? And that's something you can think about next week. Now, I won't give you an assignment for homework this time because I, don't, I didn't know what you guys had in the way of books, so we'll get that next week. So, Luke, you want to close us in prayer? Yeah, I'm sorry. We went over uh, in the Old Testament too. There's various different ways that God revealed Himself. We covered all that. In 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 circles of the true charismatic circle, that's still used right. a lot. That scripture is used to say that God does speak in those facets of form. Right. You know. Yeah. So how the conservative believer who you know.
know, uh, I mean, how do you combat that? How do you, what do you share with them to say that, yeah. you know, because that's what they, that's where a lot of that comes from. Right. Because they said, I'm coming from scripture right. that God spoke through the angel that God did this mm-hmm. and they still use that line of, uh, they still use that. Right. Yeah, I would say that because scripture has been uh, completed, mm-hmm. it's all been written, it's finished, it's completed, therefore, if I receive a revelation now outside of that, I'm adding to the right. scripture. And so all I need to do is go back to what the scripture actually says. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not an apostle back in the New Testament days that God spoke. I'm not a prophet in the Old Testament days. Neither are they, by the way. That's one other argument you could use. Are you a prophet or an apostle from that time period? No, you're living now. You weren't then. You weren't back then doing all that during the time where God was doing that. The scripture's completed now. It's over with. Base what you say on the scripture itself, not on your supposed dream you had or something. God did speak through various ways in those days. Right. And in many ways, he did that. Yep. Specifically, mm-hmm. he is clear, but he said he speak one way this day. Through his son. And through his son. That's right. You know, so that's the thing that yeah, that's great. helped me out yeah. to understand that. Right. It really, it really spoke volumes to my personal life. Right. And to realize that God speaks through the written word. That is a great so, argument. I've never even heard that. <laughs> presented like exactly like you just said. So, but that's yeah. the way I, well, I, I was able yeah. to understand it for myself yeah. and realize that. Mm-hmm. A lot of that stuff is bogus. Right. God speaks to us through And I've thought of that verse in connection with this, but the way you just put it was interesting. Yeah. I like that. So. Okay, anything else? We've got a couple minutes and we've got to start service. So. Okay, so I'll see you all next week.